Last week we saw that God will never abandon his people. And God actively watches over his people. He's our very good shepherd. Now that doesn't mean that he cossets his people to the point that no bad thing ever comes their way. Nor does that take away the responsibility of God's people to live under him in loving and faithful obedience. But when his people are under threat, when God's people come under attack, God does and will actively shepherd his people as his sheep in his flock who belong to him. Chapter 34 that we saw last time contains a glorious promise of a shepherd who will be sent, a shepherd who will be both God and man, the man who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have through the Bible this wonderful assurance that we are the continuation of these things today, all these years and generations later. It's a theme that we'll return to a little later on. There is only one good shepherd for mankind. And out of mankind, God has only one flock. We could rightly read verse 30 of chapter 34 like this. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the church, are my people, says the Lord God. You, the church, are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. And as we were reminded of this analogy We see, of course, that it fits in perfectly with the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 10, where he employs the same kind of language, and Christian believers there are described as those who've heard the sound of the shepherd's voice as he calls his sheep to himself. It's a simple picture. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? Are you one of those who've heard the call of the Saviour? Well, as we continue in Ezekiel, we turn our attention to chapter 36. Uh, One brief mention of chapter 35, which we're just skipping over. It's another statement of judgment, this time specifically against a nation called Edom. The people of Edom have made it their aim in life to do away with Israel and Judah. You see that in verse 10 of chapter 35. Uh, they will be very happy to wipe Israel and Judah from the face of the earth. But when you get to the end of verse 10 of chapter 35, the Lord is there. And that's what the Edom nation has not accounted for. Edom dismiss out of hand the notion that they will have to contend not just with Israel and Judah, but also with the living God. They haven't taken that into account. But the living God is there. He draws the line beyond which Edom may not cross. So far and so far only, says God. And when they do cross that line, 
verses 14 and 15 of Ezekiel 35, the whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate. As you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was, de was desolate, so I will do to you. You shall be desolate, then they shall know that I am the Lord God. The world today believes that it has completely discredited the Bible and the church and the Christian faith. They think they've totally discredited you and this book and what we believe. But they have not accounted for this one enduring truth. In the midst of God's people is God. And he is our good and faithful shepherd. All is not lost. You are not abandoned. And in his way, at his time, and according to his own purposes, the day will come that all men will fall before Christ and they will know that he is the Lord. And in chapter 36, God continues to bring great encouragement to his people in exile. So let's just have a look at this next chapter. First of all, verses 1 to 7. If God is for us, we have in these verses what we might call a statement of intent, which follows on from what we've seen at the end of verse 35. Perhaps you'll find yourself in circumstances where it seems as if this sinful world really has got the upper hand over you as a Christian. That the world really is having the last laugh against you as a Christian. This is where Old Testament passages like this one in Ezekiel are so helpful because it shows you so very clearly that there is no disconnect between the Old and the New Testaments and that this God who shepherds his Old Testament people is your God who shepherds you. The ancient world thought they were having the last laugh against Israel and Judah, but look at verse 5 of chapter 36. I've spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. They think they've completely desolated you, and they're laughing at you. And they have spite in their minds against you, my people. But God is for his people. The end of verse 6, I've spoken in my jealousy and my fury. You have borne the shame of the nations. I've raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. God is for his people and those who oppose and oppress his church just as those sought to oppose and oppress God's Old Testament people all those thousands of years ago 
they may only do so when God permits them and they can only do so for a time. The day arrives when God moves against them and shows his almighty hand. And I'm reminded of what we read in Romans at chapter 8 from verse 26, some well-known verses. But here surely are exactly the same promises for the Lord's New Testament people. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. We don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All manner of trials and afflictions will be known by the Lord's people. They always have and they always will. But God is for us. Now, our finite and limited sight and understanding will sometimes struggle to see and comprehend these things. But by faith we go on by taking God at his word. God is with us. God is with you. God is for you. Even when all seems to be against you and even when the world seems to have the upper hand and seems to be having the last laugh, no, they have not. Because you have a good shepherd who watches over his flock. Then in verses 8 to 15, there's a promise of blessing. And there are uh, images here of branches yielding fruit, the ground being tilled and sown and becoming productive once more. Cities being re-inhabited and ruins being rebuilt. Uh, Fertility and the removal of oppression and the silences, the silencing of all of those voices of derision is promised in these verses from 8 to 15. Now, we saw a promise like these verses at the end of chapter 34. I want to say something about this kind of language that appears here in Ezekiel and elsewhere in the Old Testament. Many Christians take verses like these And they place them along various verses in the book of Revelation. And they take and read these verses literally. And from that they deduce that God is going to restore the political, geographical nation of Israel in our day once more. Even with Christ himself physically present amongst them in Jerusalem. Verse 24 of chapter 34. That's what that means, they say. And it's going to be a time for Israel again of unparalleled restoration and blessing. 
on this basis, for some, the resettlement of Israel after World War II was a huge thing. Here we are, they say, here we are. Here's the beginning of it. God is doing it. And they, they read passages like this in Ezekiel. There it is, they say. There are some very eminent men who hold that view. I'm sorry, but I disagree with them. On the basis of the scripture. You read through Romans 9, 10 and 11. You read Galatians chapter 3. They make it clear that within the earthly nation of Israel, in Old Testament days and even into the new, there was God's true Israel. But many who were born into the nation of Israel were not them. There were many who had the blood of Abraham, but they did not have the faith of Abraham. And as we saw this morning, it has always been by faith that you are justified before God and accounted as righteous in his sight. It's never been any other way. Just being a member of a nation state never conferred that benefit on anybody. That's what Paul teaches so clearly. And today, God's true Israel are still those who are of like faith with Abraham in his church. And so, we find the likes of the Apostle Peter in his first letter using this kind of language not about the nation of Israel, but about the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, at verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired, looking back at the Old Testament prophets, and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, note that, Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Then into chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Who's this speaking of? Israel? No, the church. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he continues. You are a chosen generation, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Who's he talking to? the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel, four hours flying time away? No, he's talking to the church of Christ. You are a holy nation, his own special people who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the restoration of Israel are fulfilled in the New Testament as the church expands across the Gentile nations. They're not to be interpreted literally. The, the apostles didn't. They give us the example of how to interpret these Old Testament scriptures. Jesus in Matthew 21 tells a parable of wedding guests who would not come to the wedding. So go out into the highways and byways and invite anyone else who will come because it's for all out there. The nation of Israel, as we know it in the Old Testament, is gone. But whosoever may can come. In Acts chapter 2, there's a sermon being preached. And we read there, In verse 16, Peter speaking, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, what were the actual words that Joel was using? Well, he used things like the sun being turned into darkness, the moon being turned into blood. What on earth was Joel talking about? Well, Peter says, you don't interpret those things literally. The sun is not going to be turned into darkness and the moon is not going to be turned into blood. This is what was being spoken of by the prophet Joel. What's Peter talking about? He's talking about the preaching of the gospel. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who's come down upon the Christian church. And these apostles who are now preaching in great power, some of them in languages they've never learned, and thousands are coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, says Peter, is what Joel was prophesying about. Now when you read Joel, you wouldn't have a clue that that was the case if you try to interpret it literally. But the New Testament teaches us not to interpret it literally, but spiritually. These are spiritual truths that are being fulfilled in New Testament days. If you read Jeremiah chapter 31 from verse 31, you'll discover there a prophecy almost exactly the same as the one that we find in Ezekiel. How is it to be understood? Well, in your spare time, have a look at Hebrews chapter 8. And the writer to the Hebrews speaking in New Testament days about the church and Christ, says that that is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. It's got nothing to do with the physical land of Israel. It's a spiritual fulfillment of all of these things. Speaking of the new covenant being established by Christ and the establishing of the Christian church. And these promises of blessings are seen in their fulfillment through Christ in and through the church. That's how these prophecies are to be seen and understood and interpreted. Promise of great blessing. And we see that ourselves today as the gospel continues to expand across many tribes and tongues and nations. We see ruined, not ruined cities and buildings, we see ruined 
souls being restored. We see ruined people being rebuilt. That is the kingdom that God is establishing. So promise a great blessing. And we see all the evidence of that blessing even today. And thirdly, we see that God cannot overlook or ignore sin in his people. That's verses 16 to 21. He recalls why it is that the nation of Israel has been under judgment at different times and why they're under judgment right now, which is why they find themselves in Babylon. But it does raise a question, doesn't it? If God is for his people... Why does he permit them to go through such difficult times only to restore them again? Why is that process allowed to continue? Why does God just not maintain his people in peace? Well, it's because God requires that his people live in a certain way in relationship to him and with him. You'll often hear it said that God loves us unconditionally got news for you that's not true it's not what the bible teaches those who would claim to be a follower of christ cannot choose to live any way they like and expect that god will still love them like nothing's wrong the law of god is written in the heart of the christian now jesus said if you'll love me you'll keep my commandments you'll live a certain way And in 1 John chapter 1, the apostle there says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There are conditions attached to being a follower of Christ. God's children live a certain way. Not however they please. And when they don't, because of his love for them, God will often step in and chasten them and discipline them. Why? To restore them and bring them to repentance that they might walk right again before him. Because his love is not unconditional so that we can do whatever we want once we know him. But he does want us to know all of these blessings that are promised. But Israel are not. And God moves in judgment against them, even though they're his people. Their sins were particularly severe. And God has scattered them amongst the nations. God cannot overlook and ignore the sin, even in his own people. I mentioned it the other week. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? He can't ignore it. There's a kind of downside to all of this, though, in verse 20. When the nations see what's happening to Israel, they will scoff at God. Some God hears that lets that happen to his own people, they will say. Now, what this brings to light for us is this. Dear friends, if you're a Christian, you bear the reputation of God every day. 
you bear the reputation of Christ in how you live every day. The world will judge him in the light of how you live. Oh, so you're a Christian, are you? Oh, so let's see. And they will judge God according to what they see in you and what they hear from your lips and mine. They'll look at you and me and make up their mind about God. Hence all the exhortations in the New Testament that we walk worthily. What conclusions about God and his gospel and his church have your family and friends and colleagues come to from observing you and me? And does not God hesitate at all to deal with the sin in the lives of his people? Why? For the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. Being justified, as we saw this morning, does not mean that God will not get angry with you if you embrace sin as a Christian. Have you seen a parent who, as they sit watching their own child behaving unbelievably badly, simply roll their eyes and say, oh, what's he like? And just allow them to carry on. How do you feel when you see that? How does it make you feel? What do you think? Do you suppose that God is any different if he sees his own children doing the same thing? Does God just say, what's he like? No. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, we saw in 2 Timothy, in our Wednesday studies. Why? Because of the honour of God's own name. Verses 22 to 32. And this is nearly the concluding point. Now this will come as a shock for some of you. But there's something more important to God in this world than the welfare of his people. Did you know that? There is something more important to God in this world than the welfare of his people. Do you know what that might be? The honour of his name. God's glory in the world is paramount, not your comfort. God's reputation in the world is paramount, not your reputation. Although if you're a Christian, your reputation will affect God's reputation. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, to him be glory in the church. And God says, thus says the Lord God, speaking of this great blessing that is coming upon the Lord's people. He says, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for my holy name's sake. not doing it for you I'm doing it for the glory of my name says God isn't that interesting 
God has to be first in this world because God is first. God has to be above everything else in this world because he is above everything else. God has to be honoured in the world because the world belongs to him. It's wrong for us to want those things that we can have in Christ because we are only his creatures, the work of his hand. And for us to want those things is to want to take to ourselves that which belongs to God alone, to say, I, I want God to bless us because I want to be blessed. But God has to come first. And for that reason, he will restore Israel with boundless grace and mercy. And we have those glorious verses from 24 to 29 where he talks about this glorious outpouring of his grace and his spirit and his power. And he talks about this great renewing work that God does in the lives of sinful men and women. Isn't it glorious the things he does? A new heart I'll put in you. A new spirit I'll put in you. You will walk in my ways. You'll keep my statutes. Why? For the sake of God's glory and for the sake of God's name. Not because we deserve it, but according to his own praise and glory and honour. That comes first. And yes, he wants good for you. But ultimately, that is for the glory of his name and for the sake of his name. That he is honoured before all people. And that when people see this outworking of grace in our lives, those who have these new hearts and new natures and new minds, he is glorified, he is exalted. And the whole world knows that he is the Lord. It's all about him. And it concludes this chapter from verse 33 with recognition that God is the Lord. Don't flatter yourself with thoughts that God is at work amongst his people only for the sake of his people because somehow you are so special. Now you are his own special people. We've read that in the scriptures. You are this glorious holy nation. But God is doing all of these things for the glory and praise of his own name. And that's what is most important in God. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's God's great concern. And these verses speak of the extension of God's kingdom amongst every tribe and tongue and nation in the gospel age. People and places that were desolate in their sin people just like you, people just like me, springing to newness of life and others through the life of his people knowing that the Lord, he is God. This is uppermost in God's concern. This should be uppermost in our concern in how we live every day as his people, as ambassadors for Christ as it's put in the New Testament. The reputation of Christ lies in our hands out there every day. The reputation of God's great name lies in our hands and on our lips every day. 
as people look upon us as those who know him and are members of his church. And our great desire will be that we would not bring any shame upon him and that people might know that truly he is the Lord God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and these great truths that it brings to bear upon our hearts and our minds. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant us understanding and that we might see things from the perspective of the scriptures and that our great desire in our own souls, O Lord, might be for the praise and the glory and the exalting of your great name, that you would have your rightful place in our hearts and our lives, that you would have your rightful place in this world. And we thank you, O Lord, that the day is coming when all will bow before you and know that Christ is Lord of all. But in the meantime, Heavenly Father, we pray that we might remain faithful and obedient and that in us, O Lord, people might see that God is very good and that we serve a glorious Saviour and that you might be exalted and glorified in your church. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.